Good evening, this is Ideas, and I'm Lister Sinclair, welcoming you to the second and concluding programme of our series on the Loyalists. It is now afternoon, and I have been ashore. It is, I think, the roughest land I ever saw. It beats short rocks. Indeed, I think that is nothing in comparison. But this is to be the city, they say. We are to settle here, but are to have our land 60 miles farther up the river. We are all ordered to land tomorrow, and not a shelter to go under. It was here, with this plaintive description of the rocky prospect of St. John, New Brunswick, that we ended last week's program. The passage comes from the diary of Sarah Frost, who in the spring of 1783 left New York as a refugee aboard the British ship Two Sisters. Altogether, the American War of Independence drove 100,000 of those who had chosen the British side into exile, and of these, about half finally settled in Canada. This week, we take up the story of that settlement in New Brunswick and Upper Canada, the provinces that the Loyalists founded, and in Nova Scotia, where they merged with a larger existing population. How did their experiences in the American Revolution affect the institutions that they helped to build in Canada? And what has been their lasting legacy to us? The Loyalists, part two, prepared and presented by David Cayley. Hannah Ingraham was the daughter of a farmer at New Concord, near Albany, New York. Her father had taken the side of the British in the American War of Independence and had been away from home for seven years as a sergeant in the King's American Volunteers. His property had been confiscated, but his family had been allowed to remain in their home. They had not heard from him for four years when he arrived home in 1783 and announced that they were all to emigrate to Nova Scotia, where the British government had offered land and provisions to the Loyalists. Hannah was eleven at the time. They journeyed to New York and embarked with the fall fleet for St. John. There they passed a miserable winter with no shelter but a tent. Then, in the spring, they were finally able to take up their land grant. We came up the river at last in a schooner and were nine days getting to St. Anne's. We lived in a tent at St. Anne's until Father got a house ready. He went up through our lot till he found a nice fresh spring of water. He stooped down and pulled away the fallen leaves that were thick over it and tasted it. It was very good, so there he built his house. One morning when we awoke, we found the snow lying deep on the ground all round us. And then Father came wading through it and told us the house was ready, and not to stop to light a fire and not to mind the weather, but follow his tracks through the trees for the trees were so many we soon lost sight of him going up the hill. It was snowing fast and oh so cold. 
Father carried a chest, and we all took something and followed him up the hill through the trees to see our gable end. There was no floor laid, no windows, no chimney, no door, but we had a roof at least. A good fire was blazing, and Mother had a big loaf of bread, and she boiled a kettle of water and put a good piece of butter in a pewter bowl. We toasted the bread and all sat round the bowl and ate our breakfast that morning. And Mother said, Thank God we're no longer in dread of having shots fired through our house. This is the sweetest meal I ever tasted for many a day. Hannah Ingraham recalled this story many years later. Perhaps, like many of the narratives of the Loyalist settlers, it glows a little with the fondness of age. I have begun with it because I believe that for most of the Loyalist settlers that sweetest meal did eventually come. But there is no doubt that for many the fruit of the years immediately following the war was bitterness and dissatisfaction. When Britain signed the Treaty of Paris in 1783, it crushed the last hopes of the Loyalists that they might be able to return to their former homes. They already thought that Britain had mismanaged the war. Now they believed that they had been sold out in the peace as well. Was there ever an instance, Sarah Winslow wrote to her cousin, when such a number of the best human beings were deserted by the government they had sacrificed their all for? The state of mind of the Loyalists at New York is illustrated by an incident related by historian David Bell, which took place just before the evacuation. When most Loyalists were thinking about the unpleasant prospect of going into Nova Scarcity, as Nova Scotia was then popularly called, and settling in the wilderness, a few of the elite of the Loyalist population of New York were thinking that they had best uh, take steps to ensure that they would continue to be the elite in uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. So 55 of them petitioned for land grants of 5,000 acres of land each in Nova Scotia or Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. Now 5,000 times 55 is not a large tract of land when you consider that Nova Scotia, New Brunswick was largely empty. But the symbolism of 55 self-styled members of the elite trying to erect a special shelter against the risks of an exile's life in Nova Scotia when the whole rank and file of, uh, of loyalist sufferers at New York uh, were at their wit's end to know what their future security would be. The, the symbolism of that outraged the rank and file of the loyalists at New York. So immediately this scheme of the 55 became known in August of 1783, a massive counter-petition was organized, and within a, a matter of days of that petition being opened for signature, over 600 loyalist men signed. The affair of the 55 was to have further repercussions, as we shall hear in a moment. But in the meanwhile, the loyalists had other problems. At New York, they had formed themselves into associations in order to plan their future settlements, and most of them believed that when they landed in Nova Scotia, they would find their towns laid out and their lands surveyed and apportioned. This expectation proved unfounded. At Shelburne, Nova Scotia, which within a year would swell to the fourth largest English-speaking city in North America, 
The first fleet found that the surveyors had arrived only a few days before them, and the trees were still growing down to the water's edge. The situation was the same elsewhere. Many of the refugees were forced to waste the few resources they had on temporary accommodation, and the winter of 1783-84 saw people living in tents, shacks, or even still on board ship. At Guysboro that winter, people actually starved to death. Part of the reason why no preparations had been made for the arrival of the Loyalists lay in the attitude of the Nova Scotia government, which was understandably nervous about the sudden doubling of the population of the province. The Loyalists, for their part, often treated the Nova Scotians as closet Republicans, and for a few years an atmosphere of mutual recrimination was common. Historian Neil McKinnon of St. Francis Xavier University. The Loyalists come here and... and uh, there is an existing population, and one of the few things that the Loyalists have, in a sense, is, is their loyalty, that they had gone through a hard war, they had made sacrifices, and, you know, without being too cynical, I feel that they wanted to take some advantage of that, or at least make Britain be aware of the fact that they were the loyal. And so they will push, you know, sort of the exclusiveness of their loyalty. We have the loyal loyalist, and then we have these Nova Scotians who were probably rebels during the war. So that's going to create some antagonism right away between the two. The pre-loyalists will try to prevent the loyalists from monopolizing this, this virtue, and they will push their own record. You know, this was a province that was also under siege to an extent, and they made sacrifices during the war. And the other angle that you find coming up is that the loyalist is never referred to as a loyalist. He's referred to as a refugee, or rarely is he referred to as a loyalist. What you will get among those who really resent the loyalist's claim to that virtue is that uh, sole monopoly of it is that they will tend to push the loyalist as an American. Here we have some more Americans in this province. So you're not going to have the loyalists easily accepted by these people. In the beginning, they are a threat to them. Part of the competition between the governing elite in Halifax and the loyalist newcomers was about power. There were among the loyalists a group of men who had been prominent in the ruling circles of the American colonies and who intended that they should have an equally prominent role in Nova Scotia. This being impossible at Halifax, they lobbied in London for the division of the province and were rewarded by the creation of New Brunswick. David Bell. The elite who eventually did become the governors of the province of New Brunswick once the province was, was formally set aside from Nova Scotia in November of, of 1784, they did expressly intend to make New Brunswick a sort of experiment. Their principles had lost militarily during the American Revolution, but they thought that if they created in New Brunswick the perfect Tory colonial constitution, that New Brunswick would, by flourishing just as the 13 new American republics sank into the inevitable anarchy, that New Brunswick would mark the vindication of their ideas that a colony governed on firm, hierarchical, aristocratic, Erastian lines would indeed flourish. New Brunswick was, in other words, 
to be the psychological vindication of those who had lost the American Revolution. These designs of the elite aggravated what was already a bad situation at St. John. Progress had been made in building the settlement. By the spring of 1784, about 1,500 framed houses were up, balls were held at the fort, and a newspaper was being published. But the mood of many of the people remained sullen. Delays in the granting of lands continued, and favoritism was shown in the grants that were made. Once again, the ordinary loyalists began to fear that their leaders intended to try and reduce them to the status of tenants. These fears were expressed in a letter to the editor of the St. John Gazette, dated March 4, 1784, and signed simply, A Soldier. I would not wish you to think I mean to cause discontent or excite discord among you. I mean to warn you of your impending inevitable ruin should government withdraw her bounty, leaving you inhabitants of the barren rocks or tenants to a fortunate few that either by bribery or fraud possess all the habitable lands expressly contrary to the king's order. No feeling men whose hearts are warm with loyalty could wish to rob you of your just rights, and those miserly wretches, void of principle and compassion, must feel the force of a justly enraged soldiery should they succeed in their mercenary attempts. The letter scandalized the agents and directors, as the leaders at St. John were called, and they had the publishers of the Gazette charged with seditious libel. No record survives of whether they were convicted, but polarization continued and finally came to a head in the riot-marred St. John election of 1785, which resulted in the defeat of the government slate at the polls. David Bell. This startling turn of events so galvanized the elite that they immediately embarked upon what I have no doubt was one of the most repressive campaigns of political suppression that uh, New Brunswick or even Canada has ever seen. Their first step was to deny the six victorious opposition candidates their seats in the House of Assembly. They did this simply by having the Sheriff of St. John disallow 150 opposition votes. Secondly, they silenced St. John's opposition newspaper by prosecuting the proprietors for printing a seditious libel. Thirdly, they sent a clear message to the supporters of the lower cover opposition candidates that further resistance uh, to government policy was not to be tolerated by dragging one of the uh, impudent supporters of the opposition before the House of Assembly and forcing him to ask their pardon on his knees. Finally, and most spectacularly, the government effectively silenced the rank and file of the opposition by making petitioning all but illegal. As it happened, at the very time this law was passed in New Brunswick, such a petition was circulating. It attracted, well, probably uh, many, many hundred signatures, but the, the one copy that survives has 327 signatures. When this petition was presented to the governor, the four men who presented it were promptly arrested and charged with circulating a seditious libel. 
in violation of this new law. So in other words, what in effect you have is a loyalist elite charging that more than half of the voters in Loyalist St. John are in fact disloyal, are seditious. In his book on early Loyalist St. John, David Bell suggests that these events had a profound influence on the future politics of New Brunswick, both by driving many people out of the province and by permanently narrowing the political spectrum. Loyalist scholar Anne Condon of the University of New Brunswick disagrees. She argues that effective dissent continues. St. John is extremely hostile to uh, the Fredericton government for almost its entire history. It certainly was hostile into the 1790s. Constantly, the fishermen of St. John were protesting against the privileges that the elite had given themselves. There were other uh, protests about property arrangement, about taxes. There's a long dispute within the assembly that is so severe that no bills are passed for four years in the assembly because the council and the assembly can't get together. These are all led by St. John people. So I think it continues, and I think it may well be true that some of the St. John leaders went back to the U.S., but I think the split is profound. I think it's between the working-class people of St. John and the planter aristocracy of central New Brunswick, and it, it continues through responsible government and well into New Brunswick history. However one settles the question of the vitality of dissent in New Brunswick after 1785, it is clear that in the long run, the Loyalist elite were themselves unsuccessful in shaping New Brunswick to their vision. Sidney Wise, Dean of Graduate Studies at Carleton University. This loyalism, as it intermingled with the commercial enterprise in, in the first half of the 19th century, did not result in any powerful integrative kind of approach to politics. A characteristic of New Brunswick until very recent years has been a very high degree of localism. In fact, organization right at the parish level. New Brunswick is divided into large counties and then tiny parishes. And on the part of the loyalist elite and then those who join them later on in the century, there seems no disposition to break down this extreme localism and assert the authority of the provincial state. New Brunswick was the province which the Loyalists had most to themselves, and yet in the end, what David Bell calls the elite's experiment in vindication fails. There wasn't really much scope for a planter aristocracy in what was destined to be an extractive economy, and there is a certain pathos in the situation of the elite which is captured in a letter of Edward Winslow's, which he wrote in 1797, after his appointment, along with Ward Chipman, to the commission which would establish the main New Brunswick boundary. One advantage must result, both to Chipman and myself. It has taken us from that dreamy path which both of us have been imperceptibly sliding into, obscurity and despair. During the first bustle here, we combated difficulties with alacrity, and we submitted to inconveniences without murmuring. As soon as this was over, and the eagerness of expectation had subsided, we saw the whole society sinking into a sort of lethargy. 
Those who had salaries made their calculations to eat, drink, and vegetate to the exact amount of their incomes. Those who had none were saved all the trouble of estimates, for they could get nothing either to eat or drink. I belong, nearly, to the latter class. I found myself loaded with titles, overwhelmed with honours, but with little money. I was the proprietor of a tract of land, beautifully situated upon a navigable river, and covered with prodigious fine timber. But the river glided by without material advantage to me, for I could not buy a boat, and the trees might have stood to eternity, for I could hardly get credit for an axe. It's been estimated that by 1800, somewhere between 50 and 75 percent of the Loyalists who originally moved to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia had returned to the United States. The wounds of war had begun to heal. British military pensions had become portable, and the Atlantic provinces had turned out to be a pretty hard place for so many new immigrants to get a living. Typical of the shakedown that took place over the first few years was the case of Shelburne, Nova Scotia. Neil McKinnon. In the beginning, there was that immense optimism, and uh, people rushed in, perhaps less than 10,000, but definitely the fourth largest city in America, uh, you know, with three newspapers and dancing masters and things like that, you know, the, the heirs of an urban center. Uh, what happens to keep the optimism alive for a while is that it looks as if the Americans will be kept out of the West Indian trade, and therefore Shelburne hopes that it can become sort of an entrepot uh, for that trade, will be able to service the West Indies. Then I think with time what you find that Shelburne really couldn't fulfill any function that Halifax, established Halifax, wasn't already fulfilling. What I have is sort of an in a city instantly created, and then it seeks a function in order to justify economically the existence of that city. After the promised three years of British rations ran out in 1786, the population of Shelburne diminished rapidly. Some returned to the U.S., some settled elsewhere in the province. For those who did stay, it often took a number of years before they found an appropriate niche, but gradually they were integrated into the economy and the society. Unlike the New Brunswick Loyalists, who controlled the government from the beginning, the Nova Scotia Loyalists were outsiders, and so their political strength developed in opposition to the governing clique at Halifax. Neil McKinnon. I tend to find, for example, in the, in the assembly, the loyalists in the reform movements in the assembly during the 80s are backed up by the Nova Scotians from the hinterland. It's not simply, after a while, loyalist, pre-loyalist. It becomes sort of hinterland versus Halifax. And both loyalists and pre-loyalists shared that hinterland. They had many, many things in common. I guess I find a fading of resentment one to the other as time goes by, and an awakening and an awareness of common interests, common concerns. It is this absorption of the Loyalists into the existing political culture that distinguishes Nova Scotia from the other centers of Loyalist settlement. Unlike New Brunswick and Ontario, Nova Scotia never really developed a separate, self-conscious Loyalist tradition, except perhaps at a local and family level. In the early 19th century school books, there's hardly any mention made of the Loyalists. They are, you know, one-line, two-line throwaways. Joseph Howe was the son of a Loyalist, and you study his writings, 
and there's hardly any mention of the Loyalists. He reported on the 50th anniversary of um, the Loyalists, and his only report was just a, a notice that uh, St. John had held a celebration. There's no comment on the celebration, no mention that perhaps we should do it in Nova Scotia. So the Loyalists are really downplayed. It's very strange. Of all the maritime Loyalist settlers, those who probably fared the worst were the black Loyalists. Their freedom guaranteed by the British in exchange for their services during the war, they had come to Nova Scotia with the promise that they would be treated like any other Loyalists. Instead, they were often denied their land grants, exploited as cheap labor, and reduced to the status of sharecroppers and indentured servants. White Loyalist society, on the whole, took the view that their land grants were compensations for what they had lost in the Revolution, and since the black Loyalists had lost nothing, it must be that they were entitled to nothing. In 1790, after six years of fruitless waiting, one of the black Loyalists, Sergeant Thomas Peters, decided to act. He obtained a power of attorney from many of the landless Nova Scotia and New Brunswick blacks, and he sailed for England to present his petition to the British government. The humble memorial and petition of Thomas Peters, a free Negro, and late a sergeant in the regiment of guides and pioneers on behalf of himself and the loyal black refugees. Your memorialist and the other black pioneers, having served in North America for the space of seven years and upwards during the late war, afterwards went to Nova Scotia under the promise of obtaining the usual grants of land and provisions. They have made repeated applications to all persons in that country whom they conceived likely to put them into possession of their due allotments. With their wives and children amounting together to the number of 102 people, they now remain at Annapolis Royal, destitute and helpless, having not yet obtained their allotments of land, except one single acre each for a town lot. There are also a number of black refugees consisting of about 100 families or more at New Brunswick in a like unprovided and destitute condition. As a result of Thomas Peter's petition, the British government sent instructions to Nova Scotia that the promises made to the black loyalists should be honored. An alternative offer of free transportation to a new settlement at Sierra Leone was also made and it is historian Jim Walker's view that virtually as many as were able took up this offer and sailed for Africa. The promises to those who remained, for the most part, were never met. All you good people and listen to me song It's about the poor people how they're getting along Light fishing the spring up in the fall and when it's all over they've nothing at all and it's hard hard times the best thing to do is to work with a will but when it's all over you'd hold on the hill you'd hold on the hill and lay out in the cold and when it's all over you're still in the hole and it's hard, hard, hard times. 
The settlement of the Loyalists in Upper Canada was a different story again from either New Brunswick or Nova Scotia. At the end of the war, those who would become the founders of Ontario were either serving as soldiers in one of the Canadian-based Loyalist regiments or living as refugees in the camps around Montreal. The governor of Canada at the time was Frederick Haldimand, and his problem was how and where to resettle all these people, who numbered in all about 6,000 whites and 2,000 Iroquois. Being persuaded that it would be unwise to mix them in amongst the existing French population of Quebec, he eventually purchased a tract of land from the Indians along the north shore of the St. Lawrence, between what today are the cities of Cornwall and Kingston. And in mid-May 1784, the first party set off up the river from Lachine. The story was some people had only what the government issued them, which was one blanket per adult and one for every two children, this sort of thing, and so much cloth for clothing and a pair of stockings and a pair of shoe soles. Never shoes, apparently. Really pretty skimpy provisions. And uh, because they were only vittled, as I read it, at two-thirds full ration for the first year and one-third for the second, which is a diff different thing from saying they were given food for two years or three years, which you read in some sources. So it was. they had a pretty thin time. Every five people had a tent and a cooking kettle. And uh, it was a slow journey. But when you think of the rapids in the St. Lawrence, as they were at the time, and the need to move all these people in these little bateaus, and all the food and the tools and everything they need, it was a very big undertaking at the time, and for the way it had to be done. There was nothing clear. They had to walk through the forest along the shore, and they tried to drive cattle, and there was no forage for them. Just getting there was half the fun in Ontario. The Reminiscences of Captain James Dittrick. No one can tell the privations we all underwent on our first moving into the bush. The whole country was a forest, a wilderness that had to be subdued by the axe and toil. For a time, we led a regular Robinson Crusoe life, and with a few poles and brushwood, formed our tents on the Indian plan. As the clearances enlarged, we were supplied with some agricultural implements, for we brought nothing with us but a few seeds, prepared by the careful forethought of the women. Time passed, and having grown some flax and obtained some sheep, my mother set to work to prepare the same for some clothes, which we were greatly in need of. She had not any thread, so my father, which doubtless he learned from the Indians, stripped off the basswood bark, saturated it in water like flax, and obtained a fine, strong, and useful thread. We none of us had any shoes or stockings, winter or summer, as those we brought with us were soon worn out. At length my father tanned some leather, and I recollect the first pair of shoes he made which fell to my lot. I greased them and putting them too near the fire, on returning to my grief, found that my shoes were all shriveled up so that I could never wear them. It was twelve months before I obtained another pair. The most trying period of our lives was the year 1788, called the year of scarcity. 
Everything of that period seemed to conspire against the hardy and industrious settlers. All the crops failed, as the earth had temporarily ceased to yield its increase, either for man or beast. For several days we were without food, except the various roots that we procured and boiled down to nourish us. We noticed what roots the pigs eat, and by that means avoided anything that had any poisonous qualities. The officers in command at the military stations did all in their power to mitigate the general distress, but the supplies were very limited. Consequently, only a small pittance was dealt out to each petitioner. Our poor dog was killed to allay the pangs of hunger. The very idea brought on sickness to some, but others devoured the flesh quite ravenous. We next killed a horse, which lasted us a long time and proved very good eating. Those poor animals were a serious loss to our farming appendages, but there was no help for it. The Loyalists who settled along the St. Lawrence bore little resemblance to the later image of them as a high-minded and homogeneous elite. The majority had in fact been pioneer farmers in the frontier regions of the American colonies. About half of them had been immigrants to America before becoming immigrants to Canada, and they were as likely to speak German or Gaelic as English. Nevertheless, there was amongst them a small elite of conscious ideological conservatives who would have a disproportionate influence on the political culture of Upper Canada. There are a number of reasons for this, the first being that they were not the only ones who were reacting against the events of the American Revolution. Janice Potter, author of The Liberty We Seek, A Study of Loyalist Ideology. The lesson the British government took from the American Revolution was that they had a second chance in Canada, and the kind of society that they wanted to create there would be very different than what had been created in, in what became the United States. The main features of that society would be a more conservative society. And the British government was very effective in its policies adopted for the new colonies in British North America in ensuring that the uh, political institutions that were established, the uh, land-holding structure that was established was more conservative and buttressed, laid the foundations for the kind of society that the Loyalists had wanted in the American colonies. The conservatism of the Loyalists was also reinforced by two other factors. The first was that the immigrants who preferred Canada to the United States, notably the Highland Scots and the English gentry, were themselves conservatives. The second was the general conservative reaction, particularly in England, to the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. The peculiar and indispensable role of the Loyalists was to ground this conservatism in the soil of Canada. They were the link between British conservatism and a native American pragmatism. George Rollick, the chairman of history at Queen's University, finds a particularly notable version of this blend in the career of Richard Cartwright, a native of Albany and later a prominent Kingston merchant. A loyalist like Richard Cartwright, who on the one hand would uh, be fairly conservative in terms of political issues, was an advocate during his early period for free trade with the United States. He was able to blend the two as far as he was concerned. Free trade with the United States would be the means whereby 
Upper Canadian society would grow stronger and more wealthy and ensure that this society would remain part of Great Britain. So he's able to wed the two concepts. He was able, in fact, to be, it would seem to be fairly pragmatic or liberal in quotation marks in uh, commercial questions while being fairly conservative uh, in terms of political ideology. But he wasn't as conservative as many others in Upper Canada who advocated an established Anglican church. Cartwright was opposed to that. Cartwright was also opposed to other so-called Tory reforms introduced by Simcoe, for example, because he felt that these were British imports which really had nothing to say to the North American environment. He was very much a man who reflected the North American environment. A letter from Richard Cartwright to Isaac Todd on the subject of Governor Simcoe's ambitious designs for Upper Canada. I do not doubt the disposition of the governor to consult the welfare of the province. Yet this disposition sometimes puts on an odd appearance. He is a man of warm and sanguine temper that will not let him see any obstacles to his views. He thinks every existing regulation in England would be proper here. Not attending sufficiently, perhaps, to the spirit of the Constitution, he seems bent on copying all the subordinate establishments without considering the great disparity of the two countries in every respect. And it really would not surprise me to see attempts made to establish among us ecclesiastical courts, tithes, and religious tests, though nine-tenths at least of our people are of persuasions different from the Church of England. Though the whole have been bred in a country where there was the most perfect freedom in religious matters, and though this would certainly occasion almost a general emigration. The native conservatism which Cartwright and others of his class were bent on establishing in Upper Canada stressed authority and hierarchy on the one hand, tolerance and pluralism on the other. Its essence is captured in the phrase ordered liberty, and the state was seen as the proper vehicle for its realization. Sidney Wise. Some of the earliest examples of direct state-run systems of public education, even though they're minor in terms of our scale, emerge in Upper Canada by the end of the War of 1812. Now, this is a union. I think of this loyalist attitude towards the state and a Scottish attitude towards education. That's, that's very important. as personified in someone like John Strong. At any rate, the use of state the state as a bulwark, as a weapon, as a means to facilitate the building of a strong, orderly, free society is intrinsic, I would say, to the loyalist and conservative vision which emerges in Upper Canada and is not lost. Another aspect of the passion for order bred in the tumults of the American Revolution is illustrated by an incident which took place at York in September of 1805. William Jarvis, a loyalist and the provincial secretary of Upper Canada, was so incensed by the behavior of a mob during a York by-election that he tried to prevent the disturbance they were making. The results were reported by his wife, Hannah. Mr. Jarvis is sick. Having gone out to suppress a mob, four men fell upon him and cut his head very bad and bruised him so much that he is not able to lift his hand to his head or open his left eye. It happened at midnight. He took his broadsword with him, which saved his life. He cut one man's hand off a little below the fingers, saving the forefinger and thumb, disarmed another, 
The others ran away, but have since been taken and thrown into jail. One who endeavoured to escape is shackled with 50 pounds of iron. The theme of ordered liberty runs right through loyalist conservatism, and much of what has been said about it so far applies as much to Nova Scotia or New Brunswick as to Upper Canada. Where a difference begins to be seen is in relation to the United States. In the years leading up to the war in 1812, Upper Canada felt increasingly threatened by the expansionist rhetoric of the Americans. This mood is captured in a speech of Richard Cartwright's given at the end of 1807 to the assembled militia of Frontenac County. Gentlemen, Great Britain has peculiar claims to the gratitude and attachment of the inhabitants of this province. We possess from her bounty a soil of no common fertility that furnishes to the industrious every necessary of life. We live in the most unbounded security of our persons and property without being at any charge for our judicial establishment. We enjoy every benefit of the best regulated government without being called on to defray any part of its expense. Every advantage which men can derive from civil society has been lavished upon us while we have been exempt from all its burdens. These are benefits conferred on us alone, and cold and worthless must be the heart on which they fail to make an impression. Thus favoured and distinguished by the British government for our loyalty, what fate must we expect should we fall under the dominion of America? What indeed can we expect but that the former animosities and persecutions against the adherents of royalty, under which many of us have already smarted, would be revived with new vigour, and that we should be made to feel every injury and indignity that personal and political enmity could dictate to vulgar minds? Listen not to those who talk of our scattered settlements and slender population as incapable of resistance. These are the suggestions of cowardice or treachery. Our population affords thousands of brave men to arm in the cause of their country and support it as we shall be by a regular military force. What have we to fear from any attempt to invade us? Now come all ye bold Canadians, I'll have you lend an ear Concerning a fine that would make your courage cheer Concerning an engagement that we had at Sandwich Town The courage of those Yankee boys so lately we pulled down Now there was a bold commander, brave General Brock by name Took shipping at Niagara and down to York he came he says, my gallant heroes, if you'll come along with me, we'll fight those proud Yankees in the west of Canada. And now we are all home again, each man is safe and sound. May the memory of this conquest all through the province sound. Success unto our volunteers who did their rights maintain, and to our bold commander, brave General Brock by name. It was the War of 1812 that finally fused all the elements of Upper Canadian conservatism into a powerful and expansive ideology. 
anti-Americanism became the glue that held it together, as conservative ideologues like Bishop John Strong downplayed the actual extent of popular support for the Americans and exaggerated the role of the Loyalist militia in repelling the invasion. Dennis Duffy is the author of Gardens, Covenants, and Exiles, Loyalism in the Literature of Upper Canada. A very important storyteller to Upper Canada was Bishop John Strawn, who put forward the point that this was, as it were, American Revolution Round Two, and that those who had lost the first would now, by their success at repelling an American invasion, therefore come to vindicate the original choice that had been made. And the paradox of this whole situation, the paradox that shows us the inclusivity, the universality of that myth, is that it receives its first articulation in John Strawn's greatest enemy, in Edgerton Ryerson. And Edgerton Ryerson wrote the first book on the Loyalist of Upper Canada. And here he is, John Strawn's worst enemy over clergy reserves, the support of the University of Toronto over a million theological and cultural and social issues. And yet, it is Edgerton Ryerson who puts into a very fat, largely unreadable history this mythology that John Strawn had been busy helping to invent. But it was obviously a myth whose time had come. The myth of loyalism, as Dennis Duffy calls it, continues to grow and develop from 1812 onwards as the actual role of the Loyalists becomes submerged in a powerful ideological image. The nature of this image, however, varies significantly between the various provincial societies. In Upper Canada, militarism and anti-Americanism are the crucial elements. In New Brunswick, pastoral and religious themes predominate. The time is May 17, 1883, the eve of the Loyalist Centennial in St. John. The descendants of the Loyalists gather in Trinity Church for a solemn memorial service. assembled to retrace the course and recall some of the events connected with the first century of our existence as a people in this country, we recognize thine hand in the coming to this section of the great American continent of our loyalist ancestors, whose landing on our shores 100 years ago we would now gladly and gratefully commemorate. We thank thee, we glorify thee on behalf of those brave and enterprising men, those heroic and enduring women who contributed so largely to the laying broad and deep and strong 
of the foundation of that great Canadian dominion beneath whose flag we worship and are permitted to enjoy so much. With their wise legislation, their skillful enterprises, before which the unbroken desert became as a fruitful field, and the fruitful field as a garden which the Lord delighteth to bless, so that now with goodly cities, thrifty towns, growing villages, and an increasingly fruitful country, with the hum of industry saluting the ear on every hand, and with the sails of our commercial marine whitening the waters in every direction, we are gathered within these hallowed walls tonight to rejoice before thee in thy goodness and to praise the Lord for all his mercy. Amen. In Dr. Pope's prayer on that midnight 100 years ago, we see loyalism invoked on behalf of the St. John elite's sense of itself as a people chosen and blessed by divine providence. In the years that followed, loyalism also provided a sanction for the campaign of the Imperial Federationists, who sought, as their name implies, the incorporation of all the British peoples into one great transnational state. But as Dr. Pope's style of providential theology waned and the Imperial Federation movement declined, loyalism also ceased to be a story in which English Canadians could see themselves reflected. It had become too identified with the interests of a single class and a single ethnic group, and from the 1920s on, with Canadian society becoming more diversified and more Americanized, it endured mainly as a local and genealogical tradition. Sidney Wise if we pursue loyalism with a capital L and attempt to trace it up through the 19th century and into the 20th, we will find ourselves pursuing, in fact, something quite different. We will find ourselves pursuing the loyalist myth. By the middle of the 19th century, a most curious picture had begun to develop among people of loyalist descent of who they were, what they were like, and, of course, they were upper class, moneyed, Anglican, highly literate. Now that, obviously, is very far removed from what the Loyalists actually were. And so we begin to enter this strange garden of official Loyalism, which still lives, of course. The distinction we have to make is between large L Loyalism as it organizes itself and holds its annual conventions and its ritual observances, and the conservative content of loyalism, which had entered into that larger conservative matrix of the Upper Canadian Society and, to a lesser extent, of the Atlantic societies. This, I think, is the enduring significance of loyalism and what we need to hold on to as we confront the rather embarrassed tone of current debates over the meaning of the bicentennial celebrations in Ontario and the Maritimes. Loyalism, for better and for worse, was a formative influence on significant sections of Canadian society. Perhaps it is time we looked our ancestors in the eye. Dennis Duffy. Because loyalism became identified with the experience of a particular ethnic group, and largely particular social class, when Canada changed and became the multicultural society that supposedly it is in the process of becoming, what happened was 
the nubby, iron-hard particularities of individual experiences were faultily seen as having to be ironed out, and all of us shaped into one grand Canadian person. And so what we are doing in the process of trying to build a new bland tradition is ironing out the basis for any genuine tradition. When, for example, I read a report by the Ontario Human Rights Commission which mentions that the concept of loyalism is a divisive notion in our society, I think to myself, well, what does the person mean by a uniting notion? Does he mean something where we all came out of a supermarket yesterday and therefore have all been processed the same? The only way it seems to me that we get anywhere, whether as individuals or as societies, is we accept ourselves, warts and all, and are wanting to make our traditions sanitized and squeaky clean is the worst sort of thing that we can do because what we will wash away is all the grit and dust and diamonds in the rough also that are life. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the second and concluding program of our series on the Loyalists, prepared and presented by David Cayley. Readings in both programs were by Colin Fox and Lynn Darragon. Sound effects, Jerry Fielding. Technical operations, Brian Wood. Production assistant, Alison Moss. Producer, Robert Prowse. If you'd like a free reading list for this series, please write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And a printed transcript is also available at a cost of $3.50 by writing to Loyalists, care of CBC Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Make your check or money order payable to CBC Transcripts, don't send cash, and be prepared to wait five or six weeks for delivery. The executive producer of Ideas is Robert Prowse. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>